Know the Source on One Radio Network. Well, very pleasant good morning to you. This is Patrick Timpone. It is June 7, 2023, and it's the first Wednesday of the month. And that brings us to the real world of money with Fred Dashevsky, good friend. And he is the um, head cook and bottle washer there at U.S. Coin Capital with an O. And we're going to say hi to him in just a second and take your questions on email. Patrick at OneRadioNetwork.com. A little bit later on, uh, after Fred, we're going to talk with Lisa Raskin. Lisa, uh, I've known her forever, not quite as long as Fred, but uh, she is an Ayurvedic doctor. And Ayurveda is a wonderful uh, template that you can play with your health and um, it's been around thousands of years, so it's pretty cool. So we will we will do that. And then next week we have Dr. Chafee, uh, the carnivore guy, and then also Tom Cowan, who is probably the one of the leaders in the whole There Ain't No Virus, baby. And uh, let that, that whole movement is picking up steam around the world. More and more people are talking about it. And, uh, boy, you talk about clipping the wings of the WHO, you prove that there is no virus, there never was one, and their whole thing just ends, as l- along with the AMA and the CDC and the rest of it, which means it may take a while for this to happen. WHO just came out yesterday saying that they were going to start their worldwide digital vaccine passport. Well, that'll be fun. Fred, are you going to go to France anytime soon? You're going to get a digital passport? <laughs> Uh, I, I wasn't planning on it, but that would be a nice trip. Yeah. Never been to Paris. Be fun, huh? We were just talking about off the sure. air, Fred Dashevsky, who had the, uh, uh, our, our star uh, on the Once of the Month show and, and the proprietor of U.S. Coin Capital, that the French people are in the streets today or over the weekend, half a million. And they're not happy about telling their wives, that they, they are going to have to wait two years until they can retire. They raised it, Fred, from 62 to 64, I believe. Interesting. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, when the government runs out of money, uh, it gets to a point where, you know, as I said off camera, desperate times, desperate measures. So, you know, what do you do when you're out of capital and you've got unfunded liabilities like so we do in America? Of course, we know that we owe trillions and trillions of dollars to the Social Security and welfare funds that the government doesn't have. Um, so if it gets to that point where it can't fund these things and it doesn't want to default, you start having to make um, some tough political decisions. You know, how do you address the problem? One of them would be to deny services completely and just tell people that, yes, thanks for paying in all these years. <laughs> but, you know, although we promised and promised and promised that this was a, you know, obligation that we had set aside in trust. That meant, you know, that money would not be allocated for any other purpose except for this. Hmm. We lied and we spent the money anyway, and now we don't have it. So we either are going to default. You know, one of the options then would be to say, okay, we can put off part of the problem by making people wait longer before they could start pulling money out. You know, theoretically, which giving is what a little France more time. Just did, right? Which is what France just did. Yes. Yeah. And, of course, the public knee-jerk reaction was, as you would expect, you know. <laughs> Through the streets. Uh, no one wants, <laughs> you know, you, you imagine you're a month away from retirement and suddenly, suddenly now you get notification. And guess what? You're yeah. not retiring next month. You're going to have to work another two years. Yeah. And, you know, what's to say that after two years they won't have to do this again and raise it even more? Because, um, you know, in the U.S., the problem has been the number of people contributing to these accounts compared to the number of people withdrawing has dramatically shifted 
you know, where it used to be at the beginning in the 1920s and 30s, you had five or six to eight people contributing for every one person. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now it's going the other way. Now you have three or four people withdrawing for every one person contributing. And of course, that just can't be sustained. So when we get to that point where we're out of the money that we need to pay people, the government is only going to have a couple of options. You know, they could print more money, which is, we know, highly inflationary, or they could do what France has done and start trying to address the issue by <clears throat> changing the rules. Yeah, you're, you're former partner for a long time and our weekly guest for, gosh, for I think 12 years, 13 years on this program, Andrew Goss, used to often talk about that he was concerned that someday they may do means testing. And that sure. idea, if I understand that, that idea might be, well, Fred, you're, you're, you're making enough and you got enough and you're getting your social security, but we're just going to cut you back and, because we're going to take care of Patrick or somebody else, that idea. Well, right? again, so what are the options, right? You're out of money. You have to sort of address it somehow. So one of the ways would be, again, raise the age before you can start withdrawing. Again, hopefully allowing more money to fill into the system, filter in. Mm-hmm. The other one would be to reduce the outgoing flow by saying, okay, what if we just told certain people that, You're just not going to get it because, as you said, we've decided you don't really need it. And there are other people that desperately need it. So since we're out of money, you know, let's just go ahead and cut off the people. Now, I mean, you know, if a billionaire doesn't get his Social Security payments, obviously, this is not going to impact his life at all. Sure, Not going to change his lifestyle, not going to alter his ability to go to the supermarket and buy food for the week or take care of his family or pay his expenses and bills. You know, he may have to cut back one of 30 employees on the yacht this week. Uh, I don't know. But, you know, basically, there's going to be no real negative impact. So uh, means testing is a horrible uh, option, but it does provide an an opportunity. And again, when you start running out of um, choices, you know, what are you left to do? I mean, if I gave you the power and said, "Okay, you're now in charge of this mess, somehow you have to make this work. We can't raise any more revenue unless we raise taxes. Well, we're coming into an election year. That's not going to go over very well. We can do what France has done and raise the limit of age before you can start Mm -hmm. taking money out. That's one way to do it. You can cut back the amount that you pay people. That's another way to do it. Or you just cut a certain segment of the population completely out by telling them that, uh, you know, yes, you paid in and yes, we are obligated to pay it. But, you know, this is to me, I find that particularly annoying. This is sort of like the argument someone makes if they borrow money from you. And then when it comes time to repay it, they give you the argument that, well, you don't need the money, so I shouldn't have to repay <laughs> I shouldn't you. have to pay. But if we go back to the, as Andrew and you and you guys taught us years ago with, was it a Johnson Fredyshevsky when they did the unified budget thing and they start taking money out of the, the, the Social Security funds and moving it over to general funds because it made, you know, made things look better. So sure. Andrew taught us that there is no trust fund. It's just poof. It's just non-marketable securities, correct? Just IO, Yes, it got IOUs. progressively worse from president it, to president. Uh, the worst one was Clinton, <laughs> where he dumped the entire remaining amount of money onto the general budget and then claimed that he had budget deficits as far as the eye could see. Oh, when he did that, that zero conference. on the whiteboard thing. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. Yep. And the line, the crying line then was budget deficits as far as budget surpluses, forgive me, as far as the eye can see, we would have budget surpluses because now we suddenly had a couple of trillion dollars. Well, the truth was, was Robert Rubin, as Treasury Secretary, had pulled the funds out of the uh, Social Security account 
utilized it within the general fund and replaced it with government bonds. But before the end of that term, they actually sold off those government bonds and put in personal IOUs from the Treasury Secretary, Robert Rubin, mm. on his personal guarantee, his signature, that he would make good on this debt issue at some point. Well, they never did. So they left it. Wow. And it sat there. Wow. So effectively, the fund has been depleted for over 30 years. And we've been pretending that the money is in there because the government doesn't want to have to look at these unfunded liability obligations. Um, so we've had this debt ceiling increase this last week. Mm -hmm. uh, the Kabuki Theater is finally over. You know, we got deathly close to a disaster because the credit rating agencies actually sent notifications out yeah. that they were about to downgrade the U.S. dollars uh, rating around the world, the AAA rating that we have. That would have been absolutely horrible for the United States. And right after they made that statement publicly that they were on the verge of making that announcement that they're going to reduce our credit rating, the government came to an agreement. Hmm. So the Democrats and Republicans came to an agreement to raise the debt limit another trillion dollars. So back to the fund, if if they never would have taken the money out, Fred, you'd have a huge fund, right? And would that, and you could make money on that fund, right? I guess you could invest it in, I don't know, anything. Absolutely. You, know. you could certainly make interest on the money sitting there. Um, you know, as low as interest payments are, when you're talking about trillions of dollars. It's a lot. You know, 3 to 5% interest is a massive amount of money that you're accumulating each year that could be reinvested. But again, there was no money there. So raising the debt limit was interesting because, you know, it, it forestalled the immediate problem. But what it didn't do is address the issue, which is that the funds that the government has that it owes money to go way beyond the bonded debt that they were dealing with. Hmm. So the debt ceiling basically only addressed the $31.5 trillion in the bonded U.S. debt. Those are those government obligations that are outstanding, held by, you know, 8% of that is held by China and Japan. The other balance of that is in the pension accounts, pension funds, mm -hmm. trust funds, and individual investors around the world that hold U.S. treasuries. So... Um so Social Security, excuse me, has been called a Ponzi scheme. But if they would have left it alone um, with earning money on the money that was in there, this thing could still be just very strong, couldn't it, if they wouldn't have taken the money, correct? It would have been, but that would have caused some big problems back in the 90s and the early 2000s because it would have meant if the government didn't have access to that several trillion dollars at that time, they would have needed to come up with that money some other way. So how else could they have raised that kind of capital to make their budgets work? So we would have faced the reality of the deficit problems and the government nonsense years ago. And again, this has been an argument I've made for oh. you know decades mm. that the manipulation of the economy by using economic gimmicks uh, and accounting gimmicks is a really false pretense to provide the sense of stability to an economy that really isn't there. You know, we're playing a, a shell game with a house of cards, and all we're doing is maneuvering from one place to another by falsely suggesting we have money we don't. And if we had not done this accounting gimmick back then, well, then they would have faced this massive government uh, hole of several trillion dollars in the 90s and early 2000s. Uh, and as you mentioned, going back all the way to the Johnson administration, so they would have had to have dealt with that problem then, which would have caused significant short-term problems for the government. We would have had a real financial crisis. It would have required a huge increase in taxes. 
for a huge cut in government spending, neither of which was palatable then, and it's certainly not palatable now. But we got through it by pretending to utilize these other funds, transferring those to the general account, and then suggesting that that money, which was in the form of these IOUs, was actually still legitimately cash, and therefore we could count it as if it were money, and therefore suggest we don't really need this extra couple of trillion right now, and we can move forward. You know, but that game came to an end pretty quickly, (laughs) and here we are now, you know, hitting this debt limit, finally resolving that problem, but we still haven't addressed the $77 trillion of additional unfunded liabilities that we are sitting with that are outside the 31 plus trillion in the bonded debt. So a total of well over $100 trillion that the government has obligations to pay that it doesn't have the funds for. And I see no other way to repay that kind of volume of money without creating it. So that is the argument for what we talk about a lot in your business about hedging uh, is coming inflation because we know that they're going to have to print more and borrow more, right? Well, sure. I I just don't see this inflation dissipating, you know, the way that they're arguing because the short-term problem has been resolved. So we have this long-standing problem that's been going on for decades. Like we're we're going back to the Johnson administration. So the 1960s, this is 2023. So we've been addressing this problem for decades, and it has not been resolved. It's getting progressively worse. In fact, the amount that we owe uh, has almost doubled since 2011. So, you know, the rate at which it's increasing is accelerating. That's becoming really problematic because the numbers are getting kind of large. But we haven't fixed the problem, and we continue to add to it. So within that huge framework of this longstanding problem, we also had a shorter-term problem, which is every periodic point of time, Congress tries to set itself some limit on how much it can spend. And again, what they're talking about is a maximum amount the government can borrow. That's what the debt limit is. You know, a lot of people are thinking about it in terms of this is future spending of government. It's not. It's money already allocated by the U.S. government that it has to repay. And what the government's trying to do is to keep itself from overspending you know, kind of like an individual person setting themselves a budget. That's the idea. If you think it through and you set yourself some legitimate budget, <clears throat> it teaches you to try to stay constrained within that framework uh, so as not to get out of control completely and just spend without even realizing where you stand. And the government's effort to do that is to set a debt limit hmm. and simply say, here's the maximum that we're going to allow ourselves to borrow. And if we hit this point, we have to stop. We can't borrow anymore. We can't spend anymore until we come up with a solution. So we hit this point. Did they come up with a solution? No. They just did two years, right? They raised the debt limit. That's all they did. And they have two years to do whatever they want. Is that correct? Now they bought themselves a little bit of time. Hmm. So all they've done is they've said, okay, we've set ourselves a budget. We're not going to spend more than X. Well, we've hit X. What do we do now? Well, we're going to allow ourselves to spend a little bit more than we had promised we wouldn't go beyond. So the debt limit was $20 trillion uh, just a decade ago. Now it's 30, 30 plus trillion. We've just raised it another trillion. And I, I guarantee you we'll blow through that within a year because oh, yeah. we're paying a trillion and a half in interest on the debt as it stands. So this is not going to last long. We'll be right back where we started again, forced once again to face the same issue. How do we deal with it? Do we raise the limit and let ourselves spend more? 
do we print more money? Do we start cutting spending? Do we do these means testing? Do we start telling people like in France, we're going to raise the age limit before people can retire? This is a fiscal mess. So <clears throat> this idea that the current inflation is going to dissipate because they've solved the short-term problem, I'm not buying it. No, good, well said. Now, I was just trying to find, it looks like there's about $1.4 trillion for Social Security and Medicare that comes out of tax revenue, right? $1.4 trillion. And then each there's each year, and then there's about a trillion or more just to service the, or does that include in that number? Sorry. Um, uh-uh. No. So a plus the 1.4 for Social Security, Medicare, then we, the people, the Treasury comes up with a trillion or so just to pay interest on the debt, on the bonded debt? Correct. Well, so you're, you're talking. climbing. Yeah, so you're talking close to three trillion just on the top. Off the, Sure. So this is debt and money that never needed to happen, really, except when you spend too much, then you bring in. That's crazy. How there's no way out of this thing. They've got three three trillion. They got to deal with every year. How much does income taxes bring in? Well, they don't bring enough revenue in to cover the expenses. That's why they continue <laughs> to run a deficit, right? It's so nuts. the question is only now how much of a deficit are they going to run? Right. I think we're past the days where if we legitimately account for everything, that we're ever <laughs> going to have surpluses again in the government. I mean, all we can hope to do is to look at the current spending. So we've got this huge amount of obligation and debt behind us. And now we're looking at the current environment and saying, is there any way to at least control where we are right now today this year? and at least sort of somehow come to a balance of saying, well, how much are we bringing in in revenue? And how much are we spending? Can we at least get to some sort of even keel just in the current market? That will still allow us to uh, you know, continue, but it will not address the fact we have this back debt issue that is not going away. So even if we can come to some sort of government situation where we account for uh, the current spending and make that balance to what we're bringing in, it doesn't solve anything. Yeah, yeah. It just doesn't add any more to the consistent existing problem, which again, I think is so incredibly large that there's simply no government choice anymore that affords them an opportunity to address this. When Johnson was president, yes, you know, they could have done something at that point to reduce government spending or outflows or raise taxes. And again, it would have been ugly and very um unpopular but it would have addressed the issue then we would not have the problem now but they chose the political expedient method of saying kick the can down the road let the next guy worry about it it's not our problem by the time they get around to having to deal with what we're doing now we're out of office and it's up to let the next guy and each president successfully has spent in his administration more money than every previous president did combined and again people seem to keep forgetting that we have consistently been doing this regardless of who's been in power. So think about since the mid-1960s, we've had Democrat, Republican, Republican, Democrat, Republican. We've had everything you can think of except an independent. And in every instance, no matter who came into power, no matter what they promised in the election campaign, each president spent cumulatively more money during his administration in, in than privacy. every single president had combined spent before him no matter what they had promised about reducing the spending. And I don't think that's going to change going forward because the obligations are growing. You know, everybody who comes into power now going forward is dealing with this massive, massive hole as they come into power. 
What and would, they, they, there's just very little room for them to wiggle. What would you gauge the percentage if you just had to throw out a number of Americans that understand what dire straits the, the government and the, the books are, how out of balance it is? Do you, do you have just a guess? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Uh, I'm an optimist. I'll say 10%, and that's probably a pretty Ten, big number. 10%? <laughs> you opti- optimistically say 10% of yeah, Americans I, I, understand I what you just said? Yeah. Uh, and again, it's not their well, fault. I don't, no, I don't think it, people are really paying attention to this stuff because it's not something that they really address in their day-to-day life until something like a debt ceiling limit comes up. Then it gets a lot of news, right? So it's another distraction for us to pay attention to. So... A couple of months ago, we had our banking crisis in March, and that was the news of the day, and that right. took over everything. That's all people were talking about, you know, bank failures and how far would this spread. And as I said then, I thought this was a limited issue that was going to, you know, be limited to a handful of banks. It was not systemic. It wasn't going to spread across the entire banking industry. And again, it was a big problem. We spent a pile of money. In fact, for the first time that I can recall, and I, I was starting to research this. I haven't finished, but I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. This is the very first time the Federal Reserve actually loaned money to the FDIC. Oh, really? They made a direct loan oh. to, to the Depository Insurance Corporation in order to make sure that the FDIC had enough money to bail out the banks that had failed. So when SVB went down and then First Federal went down, the government actually funded that with the FDIC insurance policy money and then went back to the banks and are now suggesting two things that all the banks have to review their systems and their accounting, and they want to look at the books and look how clean they are or not. And then secondly, they're going to ask the banks to contribute more of their reserves into the FDIC fund to make sure that the next round of bank failures can be financed. But the Federal Reserve actually stepped in and loaned like $16 billion directly to the FDIC just to make sure that the U.S. Uh, citizenry did not see more bank failures, and they were successful in that. So we moved past that. And then the debt ceiling limit came up, and that became the news of the day. And that was existing for the last month. That's all we've been hearing about, because you know there was the battle between Republicans and Democrats arguing, just like you and I were just talking about, how do we fix this? What do we do? Do we you know, cut spending here? Do we cut that? So they came to some agreements, you know, they made a couple of uh, suggestions. I believe they agreed that they're going to, you know, raise the work requirements for welfare recipients, and they're going to claw back a couple of, you know, billions of dollars worth of some of the pandemic spending, you know, so they came to some sort of, uh, uh, I would say, neutral agreements. You know, Biden as president yielded a little bit more than some people thought he would. Again, interesting coming into an election year how suddenly he becomes a little bit more of a you know conservative and stayed away from the progressive line of thinking but you know so we've addressed the issue periodically but it's real interesting going forward that um uh, unfortunately again i don't think the public really gets the sense of this uh, all they get is the current news du jour which again right now happens to be the resolution of this debt ceiling limit problem temporarily and you know i would have expected there would have been a reaction a rally in the u.s dollar you know having come through this now but again we were teetering on a real disaster i don't know how if people realize how close we got when the credit rating agencies sent out notification last week they were about to downgrade the AAA credit rating of the u.s around the world that would have been horrible had they done it would that would really have stopped china and other places from buying bonds 
buying our debt? I don't think so, but I think it might have caused a big pushback of people saying, you know, do I really want to do this? How far can I go? Um, the mm. problem has also been, of course, that there's been an outflow <clears throat> from the U.S. banking system this quarter at the highest pace ever in recorded history. People taking money you know, out. They, people taking money yeah, out. Yeah. The amount of money that came out of the banking system last this past quarter was the largest in any quarter in U.S. history. And it's an indication of the fundamental problem with the bond market that the yields that they're paying are not high enough to attract investors. So, you know, it's one thing for people either that are to, um, you know, let's say as patriots want to support the U.S. government by saying, okay, you know, I know the government needs money, so I will loan them my current money and buy a bond and I'll take the interest that they're willing to pay me. The problem is the mutual fund market realizes that the banks are paying so little and the bonds are paying so little they can get all this money from investors by paying a little bit more. So the mutual fund markets have exploded and the money market accounts have exploded in revenue in this past quarter. There's been a massive flow of money coming into them because they're paying four and a half percent or five percent even on yields. And it's tough to get that out of a 10 year treasury or a you know, CD at your local bank. Uh, Fred Dashevsky is with us. Uh, our phone is still out uh, working on patients here. You know, remember patience and prudence. Just email Patrick at OneRadioNetwork.com. Here's an email from Felicity. What a great name, Felicity. I've been hearing, Fred, that this FedNow program is going to go into effect on Jan- J- uh, July 1st. Can you explain what this is, FedNow? I've seen that too, but I don't really understand what it is. Yeah, FedNow is a... a- uh, a new kind of a thing that the Fed is putting together. Basically, what they're trying to do is to uh, eliminate a third-party need to transfer money between two places. So, let's say, for example, you're a business owner and I'm a customer. Mm-hmm. What traditionally happens now is if I give you my credit card, you don't actually get the money directly. It gets processed through a third party. Okay. 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 The third party charges a small fee. Yep. The transaction takes a period of time. And then eventually you as the um, owner of the business will get the funds, but it doesn't happen instantly. Okay. So the funds don't actually transfer directly to you because it goes through this third party first. It clears through them. And then eventually it's transferred through you. And it may take 24 hours or 48 hours, depending upon the services you are working with. What FedNow is trying to do is to establish a direct link from one person to the next so the consumer to the uh to the retail customer to to the store owner to where you'd be able to process funds from one person to another directly without an intervening intermediary causing the delay in the transfer of that money so processing through fred now would mean uh if i'm going to pay you with a credit card i give you my credit card number that money is yours instantly Right away, right away, accessible. Where to does you. Mastercard or Visa come into that play then? If well, that's interesting because they effectively get cut out. Really? So yeah, well, FedNow will compete with them because it'll afford the processing to go directly through the FedNow system, and it won't require you know Mastercard or Visa. Now we'll still be using the Mastercard Visa, so they'll still be working within the system because that's still my method of payment. But it's going to cut out those middle guys like the PayPal's and the Stripes and all those people that do the processing. You know how many gazillion companies and then process credit and on all those. But so I'm kind yeah. of losing. I'm kind of lost you there. So say I needed to send you. I bought a coin, three thousand dollars, really nice twenty dollar gold piece, right? And I wanted to send three thousand dollars to you. Now, yep. in general, I could put that on a credit card if I had the 
that if I had the limit, I could, right? I could. And right. I would give you a, a Visa or a MasterCard number, and you would take it and process it and send me the coin. I so, process it, but I don't have those funds immediately in my account. Oh, you, There's a little lag time there okay. because the processor first does its thing. Mm -hmm. And if I do 10 or 12 transactions in a day or 15 transactions in a day, the next day I get an email report that says this amount of money is now being transferred into your checking account, okay. your bank account. Okay. And they might take 2 or 3% to do that, right? MasterCard. Well, yeah, which yeah. is you know okay. perfectly fine. So how would I it be that. different? But if I didn't, well, what if I didn't have the three and I wanted to finance it on a credit card, I couldn't do it with FedNow. Don't I need it in my account to send it to you? Yeah, you'll need the funds to be readily available in your account. But what will happen is, is on my end, as the person taking the funds, mm -hmm. as the uh, retail business, I would get the funds instantly. The second that you transfer them to me, they're in my account. Right. No delay, no lag time. No third party. That's what Fed now is attempting to do. Um, again, it's an effort by the Federal Reserve just to sort of help speed up the the process of transferring funds. I think, in a way, uh, and I don't think this is correct per se, but it's almost like they're trying to compete with the crypto concept of you know being able to move money instantly across the world mm. without any lag time sure. or an intermediary third like. party getting but, involved. But, but then again, it doesn't really. You said it will cut out the credit cards. If Patrick doesn't have the three and have to finance it, it doesn't cut out the credit card at all, right? I'm assuming, no, not, right? Not, okay. not in that sense. When I said that, I meant it okay. cut out, cuts out the credit card processing companies, I see. Not, not the credit card guys themselves, because you're still utilizing their credit limit with your personal credit line to yeah. make that charge. The only th change is the speed at which the, mon the money gets transferred and again, cutting out the middleman, so to speak. The Fed would act as the middleman. Yeah. That's what they're attempting to do. And and even today, I could do an ACH transfer from me to you. That's pretty quick and very inexpensive. Right? Not, actually. Oh, Believe it or not, there's several days of lag time oh, there. Oh, I didn't know that. Really? Yeah. Several yeah, days? quite a few days. That's at least 48 hours before those funds. And uh, there's also a tremendous lag time in ACH because reporting between banks takes several days. So what happens is hmm. if you process money to me through ACH, I will process that, let's say today, and then the notification goes out from my bank that there's a process going on, that's sent to your bank, your bank recognizes it, takes about a day or so to look at your account and say, okay, then it lets my bank know, yep, there are sufficient funds in Patrick's account, and we're going to start this transfer. And then a day or so later, it actually notifies my bank that we've now moved these funds, but they're really not accessible to me for several days oh. later. And if there's any problem in any of this, I won't know for four or five days. Oh, right. So let's say, for example, I mistakenly write down a wrong number on your account. And I process this amount of money, this $3,000 to come out of the ACH transfer. I submit that. It goes through my bank, comes to your bank. Your bank gets the information and says, well, wait a minute. This is not a valid account number. Now it sends notification back to my bank that there's a problem. Two days later, my bank gets that notification and then sends me that information. So four or five days have passed since the initial transaction has occurred. And now I get notified that there's a problem. I see. I got you. Now I have to get back to you and get the correct numbers yeah. and revisit it. Again, FedNow would eliminate all of that delay. Do you think they're going to do this? It would be instantly transferred. think they'll do this July 1st? Maybe. Uh, that was their it? target. I mean, uh, I don't know that they're ready yet. Um, no. Everything the Fed has said it was going to do on a time frame has always been kind of you know mm -hmm. way behind. Uh, the last I heard of this, this was their schedule. 
but I haven't heard anything about it since they made that statement, and that was back at the beginning of May. So okay. here we are. It's June, and you know, supposedly that's going to happen. Uh, a lot of people have also thought that this was the precursor to uh, digital money, but these are separate things. Uh, yes. People should understand that this is not a switch from U.S. dollars to some form of digital currency that's wiping out U.S. dollars in, in the paper form. And, you know, this is nothing to do with that. This is merely an effort by the Federal Reserve to create a new method of moving capital between two parties, you know, without a lag and a delay. Here's an email from Donnie in Port Aransas. Oh, what a beautiful little spot. Uh, thanks for having Fred on. I'm just doing the math here. And if you look at Social Security, Medicare, as you said, interest on the debt, and then um, the Defense Department is about a trillion, right? Close to a trillion. That's $5 trillion right there. How, how does this thing even work, he says? Well, it, it doesn't. <laughs> well, again, there is tax revenue and there's revenue coming in from all the resources government has to raise money. So there are there is income coming through. Sure. The problem is, is that the spending is exceeding the income and at income. a very, very rapid pace. And uh, and again, also carrying the pre-existing debt, all that interest payment debt on that uh, is also accumulating behind us. So remember now, this isn't even talking about the principal. No, no. You know, we're not even addressing the principle that we're just simply dealing with the interest. So it's like, you know, and this is the worst thing people can do. If you're floating money on a credit card and only making the interest payments, that's, you know, that's economic death. That's the worst way to finance debt yeah. because you're paying exorbitant interest rates and never addressing the, the original principal payment. So the interest just keeps carrying over and carrying over. And all you're doing is chipping away at the interest payments. You're never attacking the principal amount. You're never reducing your overall debt. And that's what the government has been doing for you know 50 years. It's addressing <laughs> only interest payments on its debt. It's not even dealing with the, with the principal at all. And I don't see how they ever can deal with the, uh, the principal amount. You know, knowing what we know <clears throat> with guys like you and Andy who have talked about us for years, I, it's hard to imagine why <clears throat> the price, the spot price for gold and silver isn't a lot higher <laughs> you know, I mean, you look at it and say, well, okay, what's what, $1,900? And this has been going on Almost, forever. Yeah, well, yeah. Do they have that much of a control on it? I mean, you've you've alluded that they do to keep this well, spot sure. price down, do they? <clears throat> you know, and keep in mind that gold is a worldwide market. You know, it's not only domestic. It, it tr It's traded all over the world. So you have to incorporate everybody around the world and right. everything that's going on and all the values of everyone's currencies and, you know, all in relative terms and look at the relative value of the dollar. But there's tremendous su suppression on gold and silver. I mean, we know this for a fact. It used to be speculation. I remember when... Uh, you know, GATA, the Global Action Trade Organization, had come out in the 80s and mm -hmm. said they were ready to put together a legal uh, court case that could prove that there had been a manip manipulation of gold and silver prices over the past decades. And, you know, they went to court and battled it out and, you know, uh, try to get this information out there. So the, the fact that this has been going on as a manipulation of the price you know, goes back as far at least to the 1980s, and I'm sure it probably existed before then. But for a fact, you know, we've talked recently about how Goldman Sachs got fined, you know, I think it was over a billion dollars for getting caught with their hand in the cookie jar, uh, manipulating the prices of gold and silver through their options contracts and utilizing all of the various tools that they have to suppress gold prices, selling short contracts, 
you know, loading up spoof market pricing, all the little tricks that they pull to keep the price of gold suppressed, because gold is a reflection of the relative strength of, let's call it the U.S. dollar, for the most part, since the dollar is the world's reserve currency, we can say that that's the standard. So if we look at gold in dollar terms, I agree, there's no reason gold shouldn't be significantly higher given everything happening. But because it reflects the overarching view of the strength of the U.S. currency, there is a vested interest to keep the price of gold from creeping up or climbing rapidly because it's sort of like a warning sign that there's a problem and they right. don't want people to they panic. Want, want I mean, look how much trouble we had with three bank, four bank failures in March. It created so much trouble that we had the largest outflow from the U.S. banking system in history. And that was just a few banks. If the truth were really well known, you know, as we talked about, maybe the 10% mm -hmm. of the public that knows this, if it were 30% of the public that knew it, more people would be taking actions to prevent it from affecting their own wealth. And those actions would be reflected in the price of gold and, of course, the amount of money in the banking system, which would require more capital reserves being held by banks, which would require the Fed to raise its rates. It would require the Fed to raise the funds rate that charges between banks. It would require the banks to have to carry more capital as reserves. It would require FDIC to have more insurance money. I mean, it would be a cascading domino effect that would ripple through the economy. So uh, there is a lot of pressure to keep gold from climbing. And yet with that, and especially this week, interestingly enough, I would have expected a little more of a pullback in gold and silver after a agreement was reached between the Democrats and Republicans on this debt ceiling limit, because this was the prevailing news for the last month. And you would think once the resolution was posted to the public, everybody would say, oh, big sigh of relief. Okay, well, the problem's off the table and we're back to the races. Everything's great. You know, gold could have dropped $200 an ounce. It didn't. It went from about 2000 to 1950, and now it's back in 1960. I mean, almost almost a negligible reaction. Like people saying, well, yeah, okay, you fixed that little problem, but you know what? We're not convinced that anything really has changed in the big picture. So gold's still looking very strong. And, and I think we're looking at our new low, you know, now the 1950 level. And remember, just back in November, you know, gold was trading at 1650 an ounce. So we're $300 higher than we were six or seven months ago, and yet we've had this big resolution of the biggest financial crisis we've seen, mm -hmm. this debt limit issue, and yet gold's still at 1950 an ounce and creeping back to 2000 But So this feels like a pretty good solid low for you, the 1950. I, I mean, think so. Uh, I, I think this 1950 may be our new low. Uh, I've been suggesting that I, <clears throat> I think around 2000, you know, should be about where gold should be trading right now. And anything below that is just a buying opportunity because it's not going to exist for very long. You know, silver got up to $26. Uh, we're looking today at just under 24. It's like 23.70, 23.80 an ounce. Again, a little bit of a pullback, but silver was $16. I'm sorry, $18.50, 18.50 in November. So we've gone from 18.50 to today with the pullback, we're at 23, you know, 70, almost $24. So it's still dramatically higher, but it's off its recent highs. Anytime we get a little ratchet down in the prices of the metals, these are buying opportunities because they just don't come up as frequently as they used to, and they don't last as long. Mm -hmm. But remember that if I can, eh, where am I? Here we are. Okay. So the, the, you know, the market for silver and gold does this. Yeah. 
you know, it, it climbs in a sort of stepstone fashion. There's always a little bit up, down, up, down, up, down, but the trend is definitely increasing. I mean, it's definitely a straight line going up, but the only thing is it's never directly straight up. It always has a little bit of ratcheting as it moves. If you spread out the uh, chart of gold or silver over a period of, you know, eight months, six years, 10 years, 20 years, it's almost a straight line. If you look at it on a wow. three or four month basis, it's, it's very squiggly. Yeah, squiggly. Yeah. Uh, so what Fred does for a living, you can see his, uh, his thing here, is he buys and sells gold coins for a living, and it's U.S. coin yeah. capital, 800-878-2646. So what are you seeing and hearing from people over the last two, three, four months? Do you think more people are catching on to the idea that that uh, the coins are a good hedge? I mean, is your business brisk? Are you a uh, busy guy? Yeah, things have been really rocking here. Um, you know, and I think it is an increasing amount of awareness from a broader number of people that is definitely uh, encouraged more to review their own finances and consider, you know, the reasonableness of having some wealth protection. And again, I come back to this idea of that there are basically forms of money, if you will, and gold and silver are sound money. I mean, they're not based on anything else. They're the actual item of real value. So, you know, paper money is a denomination of a rate of government debt. And cryptos, people can call that whatever they want. I mean, I call it more of a technology than an asset. It's a it's an item that has a price, but really, you know, the market for it has changed. I mean, this last week, the SEC has absolutely aggressively gone after a couple of the biggest exchanges in the crypto world. Yeah, I've seen and that. it has really yeah. hit hard yeah. on the value of these cryptocurrencies. And I've always, always from the very beginning suggested my biggest concern and caution for those people that were in the crypto world was government regulation. Because I knew that there was no way the government is going to allow something to occur where people can transfer money around the world without them getting their fair share of the transfer somehow or another. And if it became big enough that they would find a way to, uh, you know, step in. So they're going after the exchanges, the direct exchanges. So those exchanges are facing a tremendous amount of pressure this week from the SEC. They went ahead and sued Binance and Coinbase. And those mm. are the two largest of these crypto coin exchanges. So they've charged them with non-compliance of U.S. security laws by saying, you know, effectively what you're doing is you're running a security. And if you're running a security, you have to follow the SEC rules. And you guys are not doing that. You're commingling funds. And they've accused both of these companies, Binance and Coinbase, of taking investors' capital and moving them between exchanges without people's permission to make it look like they're conducting more business or they have more funds in one account than another. And this sort of nonsense is just getting hammered now by the SEC. So, you know, the more that they regulate, the more that the value of these things is likely to go down. And I've been very concerned about that. And then there's the, you know, the gold and silver coins. So the Constitution provided us the form of money. It's made of an intrinsically valuable metal. They cannot be reproduced. There is one of the major benefits of owning physical gold and silver. They can't be duplicated. You can't create more of them. Hmm. Whatever... 1964, including 64. And again, uh, for those listening, it is including the data 64. That's questioned for some reason. It's come up a lot lately. After 1964 is when the silver came out of U.S. coins, but up to and including, including 1964. 64. 
you know, dimes, quarters, and 50 cent pieces were actually made of silver. And now the value of the silver that those coins are made of has so far exceeded their original face value that they're now intrinsically valuable, not only because of their metal content and fixed supply, but because they act as a kind of a balance to the devaluation of the paper world, which is continually being papered, 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 papered over, more money being printed for every existing problem and every new problem that comes up. And if you've watched the past year or two, the solution for every problem that has come up from the COVID pandemic right through to this fiscal problem of the debt ceiling, the issue has been, how do we address the problem? The answer has been print more money. That has been the option of choice, and I believe will be the continued option of choice, separating the value of gold and silver coins from the value of paper money more and more apart. It's a diverging line. As time marches on, they're going to get farther away from each other, meaning those people holding gold and silver coins are going to have much more buying power than if they kept that same amount of capital in any form of paper that is being inflated so rapidly right now. And unfortunately, there's no normal place to park money where you can gain enough interest on the money to cover the amount that inflation is taking away. Hmm. Wow. Well said. Uh, Fred Dashevsky, Patrick at OneRadioNetwork.com. If you care to join, this is kind of interesting. I haven't seen, uh, this is Sylvia. Years ago, I bought some coins from your partner, Andrew Goss, and still hold them today, some $20 gold pieces. So I'm kind of curious, when would be a good time to sell? If I want to sell, well, that's a good question. Uh, thank you, Sylvia. Sure. Yeah. Well, a lot yeah. of people, a lot of people do it based upon need. You know, for sure. example, sometimes you need to come cash. up and people need revenue and <clears throat> need the cash and don't have any other source. Um, sometimes it's a um, uh, organized process that was done originally with a particular intention in mind, like retirement. You know, so somebody had said, okay, five years from now or ten years from now, I'm going to retire, right. and that. At that point, I have no other income because I'm not working anymore. So I would need the money to start selling some things off at that point to utilize the capital. And again, a lot of other times it has to do with pricing, where sometimes whatever might have happened in the economy has created an upward tick in value that allows people to take a little money off the table and take some uh, profits. Uh, but for the most part, people tend to try to hold on to their gold and silver coins as their item of last resort to sell because it's providing them with a lot of wealth protection while they're hanging on to it. You know, somebody had asked me, is this about saving or spending? And the, the reality is it's kind of like it's both. You know, you're, you're saving money, but you're saving it in a form that's actually affording you a growth in, in buying power over time. So you're saving and you're, you're spending a little capital today to protect other wealth that you have, which is why I've always said that I don't believe as much as I love the gold and silver coins that anybody should have all of their money in any one form, even, even this, that it's about diversifying. And again, it's just trying to provide protection. Now, let's say we have uh, another economic event and we get a big spike, you know, for some reason or another. We've had a few of those in silver that have run it to $40, $50. I mean, those are good opportunities to sell. You know, anytime you get any any commodity that goes up really, really rapidly in a very short period of time for some exogenous reason, not a bad way to take the money off the table and take a little profit, wait for it to come back to a more normalized level, perhaps come back in. Other than that, you know, we used to say that you wait for the high inflation periods. 
those create your best buying markets, uh, best selling markets. Your best buying markets are when inflation is relatively lower and expected to go higher. Again, unfortunately, as we said at the outset of the show, I don't think this inflation problem we have currently is going to dissipate anytime soon. So I would encourage people to be strong handed in their holding of their gold and silver coins and kind of hang on. But um, again, the, so the short answer is when would you sell uh, either in a spike in prices or at some sort of you know personal opportunity like a retirement or whatever the need for the capital kids going to college and you had funded their college fund with some of the gold and silver coins and now mm-hmm. the child is of that age and you need the money uh, other than that you know we wait for a high inflationary environment where you can just easily take the profits and walk away the problem is you know for a lot of people they ask well what do i do with, uh, if i sold the gold coins now yeah. and take the profit what, am I what doing? do i do with the money yeah. now what put it in a in a bank that's gonna <laughs> end up starting to lose it back down because inflation is going to start chewing it up so yeah um so um, a lot of your uh, businesses with these these really nice 20 dollars gold pieces right st gardens they're pretty yeah. pr- prolific there was a lot of these and these were all these were all around during the the, the roaring 20s right when I think Andrew sure. told, told us a lot of these went over to Europe. People sent them over there, and I guess they sat around for years, and then they came back here, and that's why they're in such good shape, many of these. Is that the story? Well, a lot of them went to Europe during the 1920s, um, uh, and especially at the point at which the Federal Reserve began to alter the process of allowing people to, to hold uh, claim $20 gold coins against their paper notes. Ah. So remember, in Europe, they allowed that to continue even after Americans were forbidden. So in, in 1933, when gold was recalled in America, uh, you couldn't ask for $20 gold coins for your $20 gold certificates anymore, but you were promised that they were ex- in existence, stored for you. You just couldn't ask for them. <laughs> but if you were in Europe, you could actually go to the European banks and ask for American $20 gold coins. A lot of people in America, including the big investors that had large quantities, did shift a lot of their physical gold coins over to Europe. Hmm. And they did this because, one, they knew that they could redeem them if they had to there, but they were afraid of government confiscation here uh, that might take away their physical gold coins. So there was a tremendous shift of these into the European banking's systems over the decades and it continued right up through the 1970s um, when we took the gold standard and silver standard off the u.s dollar and then eventually it was about the mid 80s uh, where some of the big buyers of gold coins in the u.s started to look through the banks in europe and say hey you know you guys are holding we'll take those. these massive quantities of 20 dollar gold coins we'd like to buy them you know, would you be willing to sell them to us? And they affixed the particular price to them and started buying them, bringing them back into the U.S. and reselling them to the market. At this point, I think the European banks have been, you know, I won't say depleted, but the largest portion of what used to be held there isn't there anymore. And now they're in individuals from coin dealers like you who sell them around the world, right? That's where they yeah, are. they're spread out amongst, wow. you know, millions and millions of people all over the world. That's fascinating. Yeah. So, so these yeah, big I mean, guys... The these big guys kind of sensed that something could happen, maybe sensing 33 was coming, so they, they, they got them out of the country. Yeah, I tend to think that those that have the most money tend to be also the first to know what's happening. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> sure. of power, course. power begets power, and you know, information goes to those with of, the most of course. Uh, power and influence. So you know, I'm sure there was a lot of inside information going on. 
you know, insider trading wasn't illegal before the ninth, late 1920s. It wasn't so, really? You could just you know, do stuff no. like that? You just, really? Yeah, you know. Wow. Yeah, you could trade on inside information up through the 1920s, you know. I mean, uh, if you knew a personal CEO of a company and he told you some personal information about the fact his company was going down, you know, you could short that stock the next day and you really? could not be charged with insider trading information. That, that's yeah. fascinating. I had no idea that you could do that. Martha Stewart would never have gone to jail. No, she wasn't. <laughs> with her little bracelet on her feet. So when people hold a $20 gold piece, like many of our listeners probably do, and or maybe they're going to get one from you, when the price of gold shifts maybe 1900 2000 2020 30 and going up or whatever does it affect the value that they hold that does it affect that value Say yes. they, does it yeah um in fact hmm. it tends to be that the gold moving up the saint gaudens and the 20 dollar gold coins they actually increase a little bit more than just the price of gold uh, because as the price of gold goes up, there's that value that the coin is made of that is intrinsically increasing in price. But because that also tends to increase demand uh, and people see that growth, mm. the price premium on the coin tends to also expand. So it grows a little <clears throat> bit more rapidly than the price of gold itself going up. Uh, and that tends to be the case, which is why they're a little bit more beneficial. You know, plus we still retain financial privacy within the gold and silver world in coins that we don't have within the bullion world that again is being enjoyed by those investors. So uh, yeah, the answer is as the price of gold goes up, it definitely has an impact on the prices of things like $20 gold coins, uh, because even though they carry a value beyond their metal content, a strong portion of their value is still based upon the metal that they're made of. So, so and more so in the silver coins. So what's the real advantage of purchasing real American money dates and limited value with stuff from the mint that is just a billion. Does the mint do billion stuff like silver and gold? Um, can you buy an ounce well, of gold from the modern mint? Modern coins like American Eagles yeah. and gold and silver, which they offer in various sizes and forms. Uh, the silver eagles are very popular amongst those that buy bullion products. Uh, the gold eagles very popular across the world. Uh, the premiums that they carry are kind of stiff are for they? a bullion product, something that's being consistently minted, but they are very popular. Cool. And I've been a big fan of those for those people that are forced to only buy bullion products like within an IRA. I think the American Eagles are a very good way to do that. And again, I've always been a big fan of any form of gold and silver against paper money, no matter what it is, no even what bars it. of gold and silver, <laughs> I have no problem with that. The only reason I suggest the coins over the bars and the bullion products is basically the two reasons. One, the coins are fixed in supply. So if you're buying bullion products, you'll never see an increase in value except for the price of the metal going up. Whereas with the coin, you may see premiums growth uh, even without the price of the metal increasing. And then secondly, for those that care about this sort of stuff, the government has completely regulated the bullion market. They absolutely have complete control over that market to the point now where somebody's selling me a 100-ounce bar of silver or a 100-ounce bar of gold. I am now required by federal law to take that person's Social Security number and file what's called the 1099-B and, and submit to the IRS the amount of the check that I've written to that party and then it's up to them to justify a, an original cost basis. Otherwise, that 1099B yeah. looks just like income. Wow. And that means it's all taxable. And the government's aware of that sale. And I have no choice but to file that form 
when people sell me bullion. Now, somebody could sell me a million dollars worth of $20 gold coins. I write a check to them, and that's it. Really? I'm not that's required it? to file Nothing. that information with any government agent. I do not provide that information to anybody. It's up to that person. If they choose to report that gain and or loss, that's on them. It's not on me. And I like the idea that you get treated as an adult, and I'm not required to babysit <laughs> you and report what you've done to daddy and mommy. What a concept, being an adult in 2023, right? Yeah. Yeah, but it still is a, t- I you know according to Title Twenty Six, it still is a taxable event, isn't it? When it you is. buy something at a price, I don't anything care for a couch you know, or a car, or anything, right? And you, I and used to you, make that same analogy. Sure. You know, you buy a couch for your house, and let's say five years goes by, and you sell it, you get more money than you paid for it. That's income, yeah, and that has to be reported as income. Again, if you don't report it, well, you know, Whatever. only the person who bought the couch would know. And if that person files the ten ninety nine on you, okay. But if they don't. You know, it's going to be up to you to report it. Otherwise, no one will ever know. And the same thing is true with the gold and silver coins. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, people don't pay their fair share of taxes. I mean, for goodness sake, we have a government that really needs the money. But again, at least you're in a position where you get to choose as an individual how to address your own financial problems. And it doesn't make me, you know, have to operate yeah. where I have to provide this information. Plus, nobody cares about this but me on this end. But because I deal in bullion, if I do, it also forces me under anti-money laundering rules, which is the know your customer nonsense. I have to know the customer used legitimate capital to use to buy that gold in the first place. Otherwise, my purchase of that gold has facilitated money laundering and subjects me to criminal penalties and jail time. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, Gerald, what's Fred's take on gold and silver mining stocks? I'm interested in Dipping my toe in the water, but don't know what I'm doing. Thanks. Nobody, yeah. Well, keep do, do you mess around with that at all? When you're investing in mining, yeah, do you mess I around? don't. Um, only because the problem I've run into in the almost 40 years I've been involved in this is that mm-hmm. there is not a real correlation between the price of gold and silver and the value of all mining stocks uh-huh. because of two things. Mining stocks, you're buying a company. You're not buying gold and silver. You're investing in a company, in company that mines for gold and silver. Gotcha. Now, that company needs to be profitable for the stock value to increase. Whether they're profitable is a function of a lot of variables that have nothing to do with only the price of gold. Mm-hmm. Now, theoretically, the concept is, you know, if you're a company and you're Patrick LLC and you mine for gold, the price of gold is going up dramatically my thought is, while you now are producing a product that you're able to sell for higher price, that should be more profitable for you. Kind of like Apple Computer being able to get more money for an iPhone than it did years ago. Mm-hmm. That's additional capital revenue that it gets to show as a streaming source of money. However, you also can forward sell production of your mind. In an attempt to solidify your finances, let's say gold has gone up a little bit this month and you're producing gold and say, well, I locked, I lock in the next six months of my production at today's price because I think it might drift down $50 in the next month or two. So I've locked in today's price of gold and now I continue to produce gold out of my mind. Well, now gold goes up a tremendous amount. You're not benefiting at all from that. You've already locked in your forward sale production for the next six months. So until that period is passed, you don't gain. Now, let's say you're also a horrible manager of your own company. 
and you spend money that you're you know more than you're making or you pay too much or you have too much cost involved and you're not actually profiting from the mining of gold you may be producing hundreds of millions of dollars worth of gold but not making a cent because your costs are so large so there are a lot of variables in the mining companies that have nothing to do with the price of gold yeah. and silver now within a peer person who's investing in a lot of different kinds of stocks I don't think it's a bad idea to have a little bit of, you know, something in some of the miners. I would definitely go for the top guys in the market, you know, the top two or three. They were probably going to fare best in any environment because they've been around the longest. They're, they're already familiar with the process of, you know, how to deal with their finances. But just keep in mind, it's a vastly different animal than owning the actual product that these guys produce, refined into yeah. pure form, minted into the form of legal currency, you know, again, having physical ownership, you know, imagine, for example, if you were investing in oil producing companies and decided you wanted a barrel of oil delivered to your house. Yeah, exactly. that's a hugely different thing than investing and in a company that mines a, for oil. You have a CEO of a company that just, you know, is a fun guy and they're having a good time and they they send their company to Aruba, you know, three times a year yeah. for a party. You know, we're going to have a meeting. I mean, you could spend a lot of money doing dumb things. And has nothing to oh, do yeah. with the price of silver and gold. You know, just, exactly. Just so you're doesn't. just incorporating a lot more. Yeah. So again, I'm not against mm -hmm. the idea, yeah. but just people need to recognize it's just a completely different world than actually investing in gold and silver because there may or may not be a correlation between an increasing price in the metal and a subsequent increase in the share prices of those particular mining companies. There was a big push over the last six months, uh, a senator in Texas, who I tried to get on the show but never did corral him, and he, he had this whole plan and, and a bill to put forth to do a digital currency in Texas backed by gold. And uh, you could buy and sell gold and you could buy and sell it. It was a pretty cool idea and you could trade it and, oh, I want to sell some of my gold now and you get the cash. Pretty interesting. But it never Very made it on, it never made states. it, yeah, it didn't make it on the thing for this year and they only do it two years. So it's not going to come back around uh, till mm, 2025. Uh, didn't make it. Yeah, there have been a number of they states were close. They were close. Yeah. And, and you see where they're going from. Yeah, yeah. Right? What they're trying to do is provide an alternative to people right. to say, well, can we do something where we utilize the idea of what we used to have? In other words, these guys are kind of reviewing, you know, the idea of the constitutional uh, suggestion that all money should be gold and silver. Sure. Suggestion. I should never say it that way. <laughs> it is a legal. Let no state make gold and silver payment of debt, right? period hmm. right so that was very specific and the idea was that any paper money that represented gold and silver needed to be redeemable to the bearer on demand and actually backed by gold and silver held in reserve that was accountable yeah. you know can i go into the vault and count the number of gold coins so you know in the old days when a small village would be uh developing and you'd have these small communities of, of speculators coming out especially as people were moving west at the beginning of the turn of the 1850s, 1860s, when, you know, gold was first discovered and you had, you know, everybody speculating to move out to the west coast to mine for gold. Well, there used to be, you know, somebody in town who would say, okay, you know, you found yourself a little bit of gold dust and gold nugget. Well, I'll refine it. I'll stamp it into a physical, you know, coin, coin let's call it. And I'm going to hold, you know, this gold and give you this certificate. And I hand you my certificate with my name on it saying that Patrick has on my account, you know, three ounces of gold. I have it physically here and I've given him this paper certificate as a receipt. That's all it was. It's just a bank receipt. 
Now, I could take that bank receipt to another party and pay him with it without having to get the physical gold because everybody knew that the gold was sitting within that you know framework, within that vault right there in town. Yeah. But unfortunately, you know, <laughs> greed tended to be a big problem. And a couple of guys who were doing this storage of gold for the general public in their neighborhood also realized that everybody did not show up at once to redeem these certificates that floated around town. And it afforded them the opportunity to print a few extra certificates I'm that they didn't actually have gold in reserve for, <laughs> utilize that money to buy property or sure. pay taxes, wow. do whatever they wanted. Pretty clever. And they continued to do this and sometimes got so far out of control that it became kind of clear to people that, wait a minute, well, there seem to be an awful lot of these notes floating around town. I really don't believe that the bank is holding this sufficient supply. So they would show up at the bank and say, hey, we want to count the number of gold ounces that you have and make sure that they're equally represented by the number of these bank receipts. And guess what? If they didn't add up, <laughs> whoops, it was a problem. Whoops, whoops. And then people carried guns in those days, so there could be a problem. Uh, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. A big problem. And it was addressed right there and immediately. So imagine mm -hmm. if we could do the same thing now. I mean, can I walk into the Treasury and say, uh -huh. I want to see receipt of all the money in the Social Security account. Where are the funds? Yeah, well, well they don't exist. Yeah. Okay, where are the bonds? Well, they don't exist. Yeah. So what's in there? Well, we have these IOUs. Okay, well, how do they get turned into money? Well, you know, we have to print the capital. So effectively, you really don't have any real money in the account. And they won't admit to that, but that's the truth. And people should recognize that therein lies the flaw is that the same game that was played by these small individual, you know, uh, small individual bankers at the beginning are now being played on a much larger scale in a broader sense. And did you say that Reuben, uh, Robert Reuben, was the guy that decided to he move him from Secretary. bonds into IOUs? And yep. what, what year is that around? Those were back in the, the that would days? have been late 80s, early 90s. Okay, Clinton, right? That'd be Clinton. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And he just took it upon himself to say, well, let's just change these treasury bonds for IOUs. And he got away with it. He didn't have to ask any permission or anything. Uh, yeah, he got away <laughs> with it. Um, again, it was Jeez. sort of a very interesting game to be played. Wow. But, you I'll know, if you're, if you're treasury secretary and you sort of you know, sift through all the legal laws that are on the books by Congress, you can come up with some little loopholes and quirky things that allow you to do a whole bunch of things, mostly under emergency circumstances. Hmm. You know, the whole game gets changed if you suggest that you're in an emergency. It up, opens up a lot of opportunities for you to do things you're not supposed to do, like what Janet Yellen did this year. She utilized the emergency processes to finance the government since February by changing the accounting and moving money around to keep this debt ceiling from having happened back in February. That's how we got through to June without having to address the problem. She kept pushing it out a little bit more and a little bit more by, again, claiming a state of emergency, therefore giving her access to emergency options that were not readily available to Treasury secretaries otherwise. And again, this is the game that Rubin played uh, and utilized his options to convert government bonds into a Treasury-issued IOU from the Secretary of Treasury, which was supposed to have some sort of legitimate, you know, uh, debt to it. You know, the idea that, okay, it's an obligation of the government. It's not different from a bond, but it was. Hmm, but it was. So, so, so they're essentially cooking the books, even yelling now. Yeah. I mean, you know, right? Cooking the books. And who's there to check on them, see if they're doing it right? Or, or nobody, really? They just do you it. Are. 
Go oh, good. Well, that <laughs> I, I'm in big trouble. I mean, that's crazy, Fred. If you can just go up and do this stuff, whatever you want. I mean, no wonder well, this sure. government's in trouble. Jeez. Well, if I could manipulate the way that I had to pay out my finances, right. you know, if I could say, okay, well, I don't have money to pay this credit card bill, but I'm going to write an IOU and put it in my bank account and write a check against the IOU. Well, and the bank's going to accept that as a legal form of payment enough to where I can write money against it. I mean, that's an interesting game to be able to play. If I do that, they call it fraud and I go to jail. <laughs> but when a government does it, it's perfectly legal. Oh, well, you know, I got a quote for you. Yeah. Um, you know Thomas Sewell? Thomas, I know, you know, Thomas, I know Thomas Sewell. Sewell. I do. Yeah, he's cool. Yeah, I mean, the guy is just, he's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, he's um, a good guy. You know, he's just one of those people that have been, he's been forever, uh, as long as I can remember, he has been writing, making so much sense that it's frightening. But one of his quotes was, it's hard to imagine a more stupid or more dangerous way of making decisions than by putting those decisions in the hands of people who pay no price for being wrong. Oh, yeah. And that's true, isn't it? Which is exactly where we stand, exactly right? Exactly where we so stand. No price. Government affects my ability to, to generate revenue. Government affects my uh, need to pay taxes. Government affects the availability of my capital by changing interest rates. And government affects the value of the money that I earn. And I have no choice. Nothing. I have no impact on that decision. The guys who make those decisions are never held accountable. And therein lies the problem. They get to make the choice, good or bad, and walk away free no matter what happens. And that is the main, is an argument for why you're in this business and why people want to consider numismatic coins. Because it does keep you out of the game. You are in a separate, your own separate world that you hold them. And unless you lose them good chance they're going to be worth more two years from now, just because of what we know, the mechanics of modern money mechanics, right? Absolutely. It's the uh, reason I've been in this business for <laughs> almost 40 years is 40 because years. it's been the anti-market. Yeah. You know, once I discovered the flaw, you know, the first effort that we made, and this went on for more than 10 years, was fighting back against this being the way it was. In other words, uh, instead of just saying, well, by default, everybody just has to own gold and silver coins because there's no other choice, we wanted to attack it at the source of the problem. We went after the government. We went after the regulations. We went after the reasons why the Constitution required the gold and silver standard and try to find presidential candidates, congressional people right. who would support the idea and understood this enough. And that's why we became big fans of like Ron Paul. You know, when he was really coming into his own in the 80s and 90s, he was a huge, powerful uh, tool fighting back against the establishment. And when he used to testify at the Federal Reserve hearings and before Congress, it was amazing because he was saying things I'd never heard anybody yeah. else say but us in public, being televised live across the United States, right in mm -hmm. front of the people in power calling it right what it was yeah, just cool. saying hey yeah. this is just bullshit <laughs> i'm sorry he's, that's a he's you know. still out there talking too i mean i've read well, some of sure. his blogs I, I, yeah nobody you know, we hoped his son would take over right. he kind of he found himself a little bit more conservative than his dad because i think he came to understand he couldn't get any groundwork done without a little bit of you know uh well, let's say agreement with the other side so to speak so he wasn't quite as powerfully strong as his father was about his position but ron paul used to come out there and call a spade a spade and it was amazing to watch so we would support guys like him because we thought at first 
there would be a groundswell. The people would finally wake up and say, hey, this is insane. You cannot run a country this way and expect the public to sit back and take it. You know, it's like every day you walk out your front door and your mailman comes up and punches you in the head. And the next day you walk out your front door, there's the mailman again to punch you in the head. Well, eventually you're going to say, okay, that's enough. <laughs> I don't want to do know, this anymore. I mean, they're not walking out the front door. Or I'm going to knock this guy out and get rid of him. But year after year, year after year went by, nothing changed. No matter what Ron Paul said, as, as diligent as he was about exposing the problem, it never came to a head. So then he started fighting to try to get rid of the Fed. He said, okay, well, let's attack it from this point of view. What if we just eliminated the Federal Reserve and got all of the authority to create all this nonsense, put it in the hands of the Treasury Department? Because at least then the public had a say, because we can vote people in Congress out. We can change the president by voting for some other party. You can't change the people who run and own the Federal Reserve. So we had no control there. So we went after the Federal Reserve. And we try to get a ground swelling of people to get support for that. That never went anywhere because the pushback was so strong from the powers that be, you know, Ron Paul got thwarted. And then you had, uh, you know, you had different guys that would come up from time to time, um, you know, that would, again, we would look to and say, maybe. Well, once the Federal Reserve System was so entrenched, it became clear to us that no matter who was there, they weren't going anywhere. We shifted to the idea, okay, well, can we at least get an accounting? How about an accounting? All right, forget about removing the Fed. Can we at least just get an accounting? Let's get the open market committee operations in, in the public view. Let's see how they're buying currencies, what they're doing to manipulate the economy. Couldn't even get that through Congress. Wow. Couldn't wow. even get Congress to agree to audit the Fed. That yeah. died. So after 10, 15 years of banging our heads <laughs> against the wall, you guys, you I know, know. We kind of came to the conclusion yeah. like this stuff's not going anywhere. Yeah, I mean, yelling in the wind, you know, just in the wind, right? Just poof. Yep. Well, that's it. So that, we changed our shift, and our yeah. focus became: if we can't fix the problem at the source, well, then let's go at least help individual people solve the problem for themselves. And the only thing I could think of is wealth protection, and that's what I look at it as: protecting your wealth because you have an enemy attacking the value of your money that's fighting every minute of every day to chew away the value of that dollar that you have to work for to earn to make your you money know, you buy free. less stuff i mean this is pretty much their, yeah. their, their whole their whole motive in life you know you can call fred at 800-878-2646 if you think that what he's talking about in the way of real american and hedging your bets and protecting yourself 800 800- Eight seven eight two six four six. Fred, before we go, um, I, I just want to ask you this kind of big, big question. Um, so, I think the debt ceiling thing proved that there is only just a few conservative, kind of real people that are saying that this whole debt ceiling thing was stupid. Right? Most of the other guys, everybody else went along. So, whoever is controlling these people and controlling Biden. Uh, Obviously, there's some forces behind here that do not look at things carefully, right? And and saying, what's going on? Who, what do you think this these people, whoever they are, what do you think their end game is? That they're just going to let keep printing more money until we run out of zeros, as Andy used to say. Yeah, I mean, well, what do you think you know, their, yeah. their motive is? I think their motive is the problem of having to address the reality. They can't do it. They can't. They do don't it. want to have to face up to the reality. So, in order to keep the game going, you've got to keep people believing that the game is working. If people think the game is flawed or it's tilted, then they're not going to play. 
So you have to continually convince the public that the game is operating and all is good. Everything's fine. Nothing to see here. Just keep moving along. So we're going to have, I think, more and more of these bizarre events that continue to occur. I, I think the rate at which we get these, I call them distractions, mm-hmm. um, weapons of mass distraction, the more of these that we have been seeing in the past few years seems to me to be a growing trend. So they're happening more quickly, yeah. and they're more dramatic, and they require the attention of the public. So in the first half of this year, we've already had more issues to address than we've had in the past three to five. Yes. So, you know, okay, the pandemic, that was huge. That took a couple of years. But then you had a banking crisis this year, followed by a debt ceiling issue that came to the brink of disaster. And I think within the next few months, they're going to have to come up with something else. I say come up with, you know, something else will be available to us as a distraction to keep people from focusing on what you and I are talking about, which is the idea that if people stop paying attention to the crap and the nonsense and all the internet stuff that floats around that people get lost in and actually paid attention to what was going on, there would be a revolt before morning, yeah. as as uh, Mr. Ford once yeah, said. Yeah, yeah, if people understood the monetary system or something like this, there would be a revolt, a revolution before morning. Uh, yeah, sure. Henry Ford. Yeah, and, right? and he understood that, and that was in what nineteen oh two. Yeah, something like that. So, I mean, think about how long this problem has existed for a century. Wow. The United States has been fighting this mm-hmm. issue, and. It's a losing battle. I mean, I remember reading a great book. It was called The Lost Book of the Coming Battle. Yeah, I got that It was that written before yeah. 1900. Yeah. Um, and, and again, it was republished uh, 10 or 15 years ago. It's kind of difficult to get, but it's out there. And it talked about the evolution of this process back then in the 1880s and 1890s, how they were already beginning to understand what was beginning to happen was this consolidation of financial power the same way that the railroad industry had been consolidated and eventually you had one major player you know then you had one major player in the creation of iron and steel and you had one major player in the creation of oil reserves and and then they looked at the banking system and said same thing is happening here we're getting a consolidation it's going to end up in the hands of a handful of people that are going to control the entire thing and if we don't know what they're up to we're all just going to be subject to whatever these people choose and that's what we've been dealing with for the last century and this is just going to get progressively more difficult for average people going forward because we're fighting a losing battle and again i think the only solution for the average american since again i i shouldn't say it but i have absolutely given up on the idea that we're going to turn <laughs> over this problem by putting somebody in power or finding a congressman or a president that's going to be aware enough of it i mean i don't know how your movie ends but yeah, I understand. <laughs> maybe your oh, president your movie does actually fix the problem well you know, know. He, he does a lot of things and they try to kill him but other than that but okay. you know it's interesting that maybe there's some hope i mean what if the media somehow breaks apart i mean if you follow this uh Tucker Carlson thing, right? Okay. A little bit. Yeah. He does his first show on Twitter, I think Monday, right? This two days ago. Do you know how many views he has today? No, it had to be in the millions. 76 million views. Yeah. Not surprised. Whoa. I mean, what if a few people like Tucker and some other people, you know, start talking about real things? His whole thing on his 76 million views, he just, he... He busted apart the whole Ukraine thing that the media is selling. He busted the whole thing open. 76 yeah. million people. Well, 
Well, you and I know that no one's going to come in and really poke the bear and get away with it too long. At some point, they'll find some way to shut him down. They're already trying. Required. Yeah. They're already trying. Is, you, know, you know, one way or the other, you know, no one's going to come out and make too much noise. They're going to get squashed. I unfortunately believe that that is the case now, that no matter how powerful anybody may become that starts pushing back against the powers that be, right. uh, they, they won't survive. Yeah, prob- probably won't. Uh, well, we'll see. But again, this is why I think it's unfortunately for those listening, each individual has to take a little personal responsibility for their own wealth. Yeah. And you absolutely should be carrying a portion of your assets in the physical world. Don't count on paper money to retain its value. Or even if you understood about 10% of what Fred talked about this morning, and I know you did more, then you'd know that this is a good thing to do. Do this. Get, call them 800-878-2646 and you guys just do real American money, right? Real American money. That's it. People can buy dimes, quarters, half silver dollars, pre sixty five, correct? As well. Correct. That, that those are those are what you call currency silver. Currency silver. Yeah, coin silver. I mean, that's coin a great silver, way to sorry. buy silver. It's cheap. Doesn't sell for a lot more than the metal is made of. It carries a little premium, which it should but not dramatic, and it's easy to accumulate in quantity and then also have the flexibility to sell off either little bits of it or large quantities of it at any point. And it's been massively accumulated from you know a broader number of people. Interesting, in this last couple of weeks, uh, the premiums have gotten a little bit less expensive on this, these dimes, quarters, and halves than it had been. It was peaking a little bit in February, March. It's calmed down a little bit. So they're actually a little bit more reasonable over melt value than they've been even a couple of months ago but the price of silver is also you know balancing that out so uh, anytime again as i mentioned a little dip in the price premium or price these are buying opportunities people should aggressively attack because unfortunately i think they're going to be fewer and farther between going forward and people ask me from time to time off off the air what's the minimum for the coin silver a uh, minimum oh, about a thousand about bucks. a thousand bucks yeah and you just store it somewhere safe and yep. see what happens huh Okay, Let Freddie. Thanks for thanks for being here. We appreciate it. You take care of yourself. Let us know you, you need too, to. Patrick, okay, well, thank I'll you. Get your phone's back one of these days. Yeah, one of these days. Okay, appreciate your support. Thank you, Fred Jasevsky, Patrick Timpone. This is OneRadioNetwork.com. We're going to make way for Dr. Lisa Raskin. We're going to talk about our little rascal bodies. See how to take care of them in a better fashion and form. And she will be here momentarily. I'm going to go downstairs and. Get some water and be back with you. Uh, this is OneRadioNetwork.com. Thanks for being here. That's fun stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't be shy about um, about calling Fred and Donna and their company, and they have a nice little um, nice little small boutique company. 800-878-2646. Just dip your toe in the water. Get a little bit going and start stashing it away, because who knows what's going to happen in the next few years. We have no idea. Crazy land. Or hot mess, as we we like to call it around here. Okay, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with Dr. Raskin in just a flash. Uh, Stay right there. Thank you. From the Hill Country in Texas, this is OneRadioNetwork.com.